I'm going to do this. I'm going to run for the United States Senate. The time is now for fresh ideas and new leadership. I'm running for student council because of you and for you. That is why I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for president. Welcome to the Arena Talks podcast, where we interview emerging political leaders from across the country. My name is Ravi Gupta, co-founder of the Arena. And today I'm recording this podcast on October 30th in the evening. This is the day that special counsel Robert Mueller charged three folks uh, with close association to the Trump campaign. And um, we have a special guest to talk about those charges. His name is Anthony Vitarelli. He's a former federal prosecutor at the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C., and former senior advisor to the U.S. Secretary of Treasury. Um, He began his legal career as a law clerk for Justices David Souter and Stephen Breyer at the Supreme Court and graduated from Yale Law School, where he was editor-in-chief of the Yale Law Journal and was honored as a member of Forbes 30 Under 30 list for law and policy. He currently is the general counsel of Shogun Enterprise. Incorporated. Um, Anthony walks us through the charges and tells us what they could be for the future. So let's jump right in. Anthony, welcome to the Arena Talks podcast. Thanks, man. Happy to be here. So, Anthony, you were a federal prosecutor, and today I think uh, there's a lot to untangle here for folks who um, don't have your expertise. Uh, people are are talking about this like there are three indictments that came down. But actually, there there are two folks who are under indictment and, and one person who uh, already pled out. Um, you want to explain a little bit about where we are in these three cases? Yeah. So I actually think that it's worth even taking a further step back, which is that I think there are three really consequential things that we learned today. So the first is that the district court, which is the federal court in Washington, D.C., unsealed, which means it was something that existed previously and it had been kept confidential. It, was, it made public an indictment, which charged uh, Paul Manafort and Rick Gates with a variety of federal crimes. And so uh, it's important to know what an indictment is, which is it's just a statement of accusations. So today, those two guys are presumed innocent, but the federal government has formally brought accusations to a grand jury, which is a group of citizens that's Uh, entrusted with the obligation to allege federal crimes against people. And so the government has to present evidence to a grand jury and the grand jury returns an indictment and says, yes, these two guys uh, are now formally charged with these crimes. And that's a case that will proceed either to um, a trial at which time there'll be, uh, the government will put on their evidence, put on the evidence against those guys or one of them, or both of them could plead guilty in advance of trial, or the charges could be dismissed for various reasons. So that's that's kind of a high level what's going on in kind of track one. Track two, which is I think what you're getting at, uh, is uh, the unsealing of uh, effectively a plea agreement between the government and a guy named George Papadopoulos. And that was not an indictment per se. It was a, um, a charging document to which Papadopoulos was pleaded guilty without trial. And it appears, all the evidence strongly suggests, that it was in exchange for some cooperation, which I hope we can uh, circle back to later. But I think that's actually the most significant fact we learned today. And so just to get meaning from this really quickly uh, with Papadopoulos, is it, I think I heard Preet Bharara say this today, but 
Um, is it is it now fair to say that there is a uh, a member of the Trump campaign and an advisor who has now been convicted of a crime? Uh, is it is that a, is that the correct language here at this point for Papadopoulos? Absolutely. So he agreed that he committed the federal crime of false statements. It's commonly called a one thousand and one uh, charge because that's the provision of the criminal code that it relates to. But basically. Uh, you know, it, it is a crime to say things to the federal government or to a federal agent that are materially false and misleading um, in when they're kind of undertaking their law enforcement, uh, their law enforcement role. And so uh, what happened was back in January, he got brought in for a voluntary interview. He did not need to sit down with these agents, but he said things in that interview that were false with respect to the nature and timing of some of his contacts with uh, some unnamed individuals uh, who may or may not, we may or may not learn, but yes, it is absolutely true that uh, this guy uh, and it, you know, is being debated, obviously to what degree he was a Trump campaign staffer volunteer, but this person with some affiliation with the Trump campaign <clears throat> has now been convicted of a federal crime. And uh, let's start with this because I think this was the most surprising element of the day. I think, most people expected Manafort and people in his circle to be uh, some of the first folks to drop here. And so with Papadopoulos, uh, this is in contrast to Manafort, which we'll get to, Papadopoulos is obviously activity related to the campaign, uh, whether it was his activity um, as in a, like whatever you, we determine being an advisor means. Like it was, uh, he was lying about. Um, his intersection with the campaign, as opposed to Manafort, which will which will be a big debate moving forward. It's not yet clear, and we'll get to this. What the uh, the allegations have to do with the campaign? Yet is that right? So, with respect to Manafort and Gates, yes. With respect to Papadopoulos, it's clear that you know, look, there's a couple of facts we know, right? So, it was back in March of 2016 that. Uh, the Trump campaign identified a group of people who were advising then-candidate Trump about foreign policy, and Papadopoulos was one of the people that was identified by the campaign as a foreign policy advisor. And so at that point, you know, it's a matter of public record that the Trump campaign said, hey, this is a guy who is advising us and is someone who the candidate would be turning to for advice about foreign policy matters. And at that point, it seems like, according to these allegations, which Papadopoulos has admitted, he was then subsequently working with some foreign nationals with ties to Russia to arrange a meeting with Trump and Putin. This seems to be Papadopoulos' goal. Now, again, it's totally unstated the degree to which Trump himself certainly or senior campaign officials had signed off on that activity, but it was it seems, you know, if you're reading between the lines, it seems like that's the thing he thought he could do to be useful for the campaign. And so the most important statement, I think, in the Papadopoulos uh, document is it says the United States of America and the defendant, George Papadopoulos, stipulate and agree to the following, uh, that the following are true and accurate. And then it goes through and describes um, a series of interactions that Papadopoulos had uh, with uh, both the campaign, the Trump campaign, and with the Russian government. And 
I think, you know, he stipulated to these things because he had previously lied to them. And he also stipulated to the fact that he lied to them. Um, and, you know, we should walk through some of these things. So, you know, like one of, one of them, you know, you know, basically he was, he was, uh, charged and admitted to giving false statements and admission. So to, to the FBI, like in this meeting, you said that, which, you know, incredibly he did not need to take, uh, well, and we'll get to this. There's an amount of just malpractice here. Like it, it, you wonder what <clears throat> this would look like under a more, more competent campaign. But, you know, there's this a lot centers around this, what they call a female Russian national uh, who is unnamed and who is said to have been believed by Papadopoulos to have been a relative of President Vladimir Putin. And that this series of interactions and the interaction with some guy named like who's dubbed the professor, which is you know, subject to a lot of speculation as to who that could be, that the combination of these two, like meeting, repeated meetings with these two folks led to um, some promise of dirt and thousands of emails from Clinton that uh, it's unclear whether it was delivered or not. And obviously we'll learn a lot more over the next few months, but the, the key here being outside of just George Papadopoulos's future, that this appears to have been known by other members of the Trump campaign. And there was some communication around um, what the campaign should do about it. That seems quite suspicious. Yeah, I think that, you know, so I think that after a lot of what you're describing happened in April, 2016, which again, just to, you know, benchmark this, this is a month after the Trump campaign identified him as one of the campaign's advisors. So he takes these meetings, he's interacting with, this professor, he's interacting with this woman who's uh, alleged in his mind a relative of Vladimir Putin. And then this is key. It's paragraph 15 of the, inf- the information. It's called, a, it's called an information, which is the charging document. Uh, 15A, he says, the day after his meeting with the professor, Papadopoulos emailed the senior, par- senior policy advisor on the campaign, have some interesting messages coming in from Moscow about a trip when the time is right. And similarly, he then emailed the high-ranking campaign official. These are, you know, uh, euphemisms for particular people. Quote, to discuss Russia's interest in hosting Mr. Trump, have been receiving a lot of calls over the last month about Putin wanting to host him and the team when the time is right. So clearly he, he's doing this to current favor, yeah. Yeah, and then it gets even worse. I mean, there's this weird footnote on page 8 that says um, that Papadopoulos's email uh, was forwarded among campaign officials with a note saying, let's discuss, we need to, someone to communicate to DT, presumably Donald Trump, that he's not doing these trips. It should be someone low level in the campaign so as not to send any signal. This seems to speak to a state of mind a little bit, no? Yeah. So, you know, my, I, I think we should really try to be really dispassionate about this. So I think there is definitely one reading, which is your reading. I, I think that if we're being totally fair here, I think there is a potentially more charitable reading of that, which is we need some we need someone to communicate that DT is not doing these trips. In other words, like the candidate should not be doing these trips, suggesting that they recognize this is something they shouldn't do and it would be bad for him to do it. But then the, the, the very next sentence somewhat undermines that reading, right? It should be so in low level so as not to send anything. To, exactly. They're nonetheless going to do it, but or they invince an intent to do it, but it shouldn't be the candidate. Well, this is, so what would be the crime here? So like, this is what I've been thinking about is, you know, a lot of these, these people who are, you know, insanely incompetent are the cover up is becoming, at least for Papadopoulos, the cover up 
is 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 what got him in trouble here. Let's say you know that that second sentence. It should be someone low level in the campaign, so it's not to send any signal. Then they actually send somebody, you know. And and important legally, it speaks to the state of mind. If they did send somebody, it means that they know that there's at least something either improper from a PR perspective or legally, and and obviously like this probably alone wouldn't be enough to. To, to get that state of mind that they're breaking a law, but um, what would be the law? Like if like if, if they did get the, the the emails from Hillary from Russia or or knew about them and participated in some way in in communicating. Well, right. So 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 the the the, the very last piece that you just inserted is where. You know, if you add three or four inferential steps, you can get to a different substantive offense, right? So the idea being that if they then collaborated with Russia to commit some other crime to advantage the campaign, i.e. some sort of hacking or something like that. And that's the, you know, it's very, very, very gauzy and there's no particular allegation like that at all. So, you know, we should be very clear that that's not what we're suggesting here. Uh, But remember, the DNC, uh, you know, their hack happened in 2015, so that was kind of old news. Um, The Podesta hack was, was, you know, in the first quarter of 2016, um, so there, there clearly were breaches that had already occurred in the past. So I don't think there's any suggestion that the campaign kind of collaborated to effectuate those breaches, but they are, what the implication here is, is that they were teeing themselves up to be the beneficiaries of those breaches. And that's, you know, obviously you don't want a situation where you're creating ex post incentives for people to be committing crimes on your behalf. It appears that uh, this process with Papadopoulos has been going on for a while. From your experience, um, at least a few months back now, from your experience, do you think that he's a cooperating witness just moving forward? Or do you think there's a chance that he's been cooperating over the past few months to help gather additional evidence on an ongoing basis in real time? There is almost no doubt. I mean, I want to put it in a stone cold certainty that he is that he began cooperating past tense back in July. And uh, the evidence for that is if you actually look in the docket of the federal court, the docket is a place where it's like an electronic repository of all the documents related to the case. Uh, there are documents in there that, that, in, that include the government's representation of him as a cooperator and um, in support of the request to have this matter sealed. And so that is oftentimes why things get sealed uh, to enable witnesses to effectively cooperate with the government. So we know that he has been cooperating at least since July. It's now the day before Halloween. So you've got all of August, all of September, all of October. Who knows what kind of conversations Papadopoulos has been having with former campaign associates or others that he's been relaying back to the FBI, either providing them direct substantive evidence if there is other wrongdoing or simply, uh, inviting new avenues of exploration for the special counsel. And if that's true, like wouldn't, if you think there was something real there, there, there probably would be indictments like either almost simultaneous with him. Right. Or, um, cause what would be the, what would be the, the rationale in waiting? Right. Cause if you have somebody like a, a, a a witness like Papadopoulos, who's who's gathering evidence on an ongoing basis, um, and he's being helpful. Uh, why announce his um, plea 
if, unless you either didn't find anything or found what you needed and, and pro- presumably could move forward with an indictment of somebody else, right? Yeah, so a number of things there. So first of all, we don't know if there are other indictments already, right? So indictments can be returned under seal and indictments can be under seal for a very long time to, uh, you know, if you think that the, the target of the indictment might be might destroy evidence if they learned that they were in fact indicted or they might stop uh, speaking on a telephone or once you have a wiretap and that other people might be talking to that person on. So there's a number of reasons that indictments may remain sealed. I think your question is getting to why did this, why did the Papadopoulos one get unsealed today? And that the, the answer is we have no idea. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. It, so we can, we can speculate. One might be that the government concluded that there was, uh, you know, no additional benefit in his cooperation. I don't know. That strikes me as a little unlikely. Another is, another is that they wanted to send a message to other potential subjects or targets of the investigation that they have a cooperator and use the public knowledge of the fact that Papadopoulos has in fact been cooperating as a signal to other people that they better come in and cooperate. I think it's fair to say that that's a reasonable way to go about things given how reckless and brazen the, at least the, the main characters so far have been in lying to federal authorities of all kinds. And I think that's a good transition to Manafort and Gates. And so, you know, this indictment, you know, I don't have as much experience with indictments as you are, but this seems highly detailed for an indictment. It's got tables of dozens of transactions. It's got uh, details, you know, for a five month investigation, they were able to track down 17 domestic entities, 12 Cypriot entities and three other international bank accounts, tie them all together, track all the funding, um, track all the transactions, and then uh, like in a pretty damning case, track all of the lies that have been made about these transactions, all while under like the utmost public scrutiny. I mean, do, do indictments normally look like this? Are they normally this detailed? So, you know, it depends, but often indictments in major cases are extremely detailed, extremely long. Uh, but I just want to clarify a point, which is that, remember, the Manafort investigation has been going on for more than five months. Mueller got appointed five months ago, and it now appears that his office took over the existing FBI investigation of Manafort. But the, the, the investigation, uh, the FBI has been investigating Manafort for a while. And um, this this indictment uh, is extraordinary uh, in, in a variety of ways, but as you note, uh, the forensic accounting involved in tying off all of those wire transfers, tracing them through the various entities that are offshore, uh, multiple bank accounts, multiple shell companies through different countries. It's an extraordinary amount of work. And, uh, I mean, there's just so many fascinating uh, clues in the indictment as to the investigatory process that resulted in this indictment, one of which is that the evidence that was seized in the no-knock warrant of Manafort's apartment corroborated this evidence that they already had and of course led to all kinds of new evidence. But um, yeah, it, it is, it is, I wouldn't say it's totally out of, out of the ordinary, but for uh, you know, it is, it is a very detailed indictment that doesn't leave a lot uh, of ambiguity as to the veracity of the claims, notwithstanding the presumption. In this document, uh, in the, the information as is what it's called, you said, uh, there's uh, some, some evidence or some explanation that, that the no-knock warrant, you know, when the authorities basically busted into Manafort's house, like in TV, 
that they found something that corroborated um, other evidence they already had. Yeah, this is in paragraph 26 of the indictment, and the Manafort um, Manafort Gates document is an indictment because it was returned by the grand jury. The Abadopoulos document is a information. Um, so just because it, yeah, yeah. So the um, in 20 paragraph 26. So you know we can get into the substance of the charges, but uh, one of the big charges is the falseness of the statements that um, Manafort made to the Justice Department. Uh, once the government started investigating them, uh, they said, hey, you know, guys, it looks like uh, you were representing a foreign agent. You didn't register. What's going on? And then they basically sent some letters to the Justice Department in response, which were false. And what the indictment says at the end of paragraph 26, it says, in addition, Court authorized searches of Manafort and Gates' email account and Manafort's Virginia residence in July 2017, uh, Virginia residence is the no-knock warrant search, revealed numerous documents, including documents related to lobbying, which were more than 30 days old at the time of the November 2016 letter to the Justice Department. Basically, what that is saying is there was evidence in the House that shows that Manafort knew he was lying when he sent that letter to the Justice Department in November 2016. There, was, there were documents in his possession that disprove the representations he made to the Justice Department. And so, uh, and state of mind, once again, is super important in, in situations like this. You know, like if you asked me what I had for breakfast yesterday and I was under, you know, like I was um, under oath or talking to federal authorities and I just simply misspoke or misremembered, it's not really an issue. But if I, if you have some reason to believe that I knew uh, that I was lying, that makes a huge difference. It's a huge difference, right? So the so state of mind is one of the key differences between what makes something criminal versus what makes something a civil violation. And so if you do something that's a criminal violation, you can go to jail. If you do something that's a civil violation, someone can sue you and maybe get some money from you or get an order telling you you have to do things differently. But you only go to jail for something criminal. But to do a criminal act, you need to have what's called mens rea, which is an old Latin phrase, which means, you know, the guilty mind, basically, a state of mind that is guilty. And uh, the, the way to think about that is there aren't, oh, I mean, with a very, very, very few exceptions, there aren't crimes you can commit without intending to do the thing that is a guilty act, right? So you actually- Yeah, like, like man, manslaughter or something is like an example where- you don't need the state of mind, right? Like, one of the cases. You have, you have to have intended to do the thing. You may not have intended to kill the person, right? It's, you may have intended, yeah, right. Um, so uh, it is critical in a false statements case to show that you knew the thing was false. You know, you, you can't go to prison if you know, if you thought the thing you were saying to the government was true. The government can't turn around and say, oh no, you actually are going to prison for that. You have to be knowingly committing a false statement. But it's really hard. I mean, it's really hard to prove, right? So getting inside someone's head. Normally, normally, <laughs> we'll get to it. We'll get to it here. Uh, but normally it's hard to prove, right, uh, Anthony? But like, let's get into it here. It seems like they've got them. Uh, I mean, I don't know if that's your, <laughs> I don't know if that's your impression here. But um, first of all, kudos to whoever wrote this because the writing I think is superb. Uh, there's a point in here where, um, where Manafort goes through, uh, or sorry, uh, Robert Mueller goes through, um, it's pages uh, 18 to 19, where he first quotes Manafort and Gates' declarations to the Department of Justice. 
Uh, and he kind of just lays them out quote by quote. And then in one paragraph on page 19, just demolishes these declarations in unequivocal terms. Uh, and um, it, it strikes me that, uh, you know, this gets to that sort of Stringer Bell point. Like, are you taking notes on a fucking criminal conspiracy? <laughs> like, it seems like these guys <laughs> took an unbelievable amount of notes and communicated a ton about crimes they were committed, no? Yeah, so look, you can prove crime through direct evidence and circumstantial or circumstantial evidence. Usually, usually, for something that requires state of mind, it's really hard to find direct evidence. You either need to have someone being surreptitiously recorded where they say the thing that you know, they have been hiding and they actually confess basically to it. Or you have a record that is something that the person themselves created or contributed to or was about them that they signed off on, such as all of the various records uh, with respect to their lobbying activity uh, for Ukraine. Uh, but most of the time, it's circumstantial evidence here. I mean, here we have a, an avalanche of direct evidence, and you don't even need to get into the circumstantial evidence, which is corroborative. But uh, you're right. The, the direct evidence here is it's. It, again, look, they haven't had a chance to put on the defense. There's going to be, obviously, a robust process whereby these charges are vetted, presumably. But indictments always are read one-sided because it's the government's best articulation of the conduct that gives rise to the offense. But, man, here, it just seems like they've got a lot of very, very strong, hard, non-circumstantial evidence. So, And, and it stretches over a decent period of time and over many different mediums of communication. And so, uh, you know, just to set the context a little bit, you know, in addition, just like Papadopoulos, there's there are allegations, pretty strong allegations that um, Manafort and Gates uh, lied to federal f authorities. Uh, and, um, you know, counts 11 and 12 are false statements, but there are 10 other uh, counts here, conspiracy against the U.S., which sounds a little bit like obstruction of justice, and then you get into it, it's a little bit more complicated. Conspiracy to launder money, uh, you know, six different counts of failure to report, and then uh, not registering as a foreign principal. Let's like let's let's paint the context here a little bit. Manafort, uh, we'll focus on him because Gates seems like he was basically um, number two. He was you know, a like a, yeah. Which will he'll be an interesting witness for sure, but. Um, because who really cares, right? Like, if he's able to give us something meaningful, that could, you know, I don't think anybody's calling for his head here. Well, but, I mean, that's a kind of an interesting fact, man, is that why, you know, why hasn't Gates cooperated yet, right? So, you know, look, the, the, the government seeks out a cooperating witness when that person has something to give them that they don't already have. And so, you know, you can imagine a conversation with Gates' attorneys and the government and them saying, and Gates saying, hey, look, I'll give you Paul Manafort. And the government says, no, no, that's good. I've already got him. Yeah, that's true. Like, what was he going to give? Because, uh, you know, if to the extent that Manafort is communicating with the Trump campaign, you know, like if, if that's what they are trying to, they're trying to leverage this, these charges to get him to start to talk about. Yeah, it's, it's possible Gates never really communicated with the Trump campaign. He only communicated with Manafort and all of these weird entities that they set up. Yeah. And, and now having said, having said that, I really think that the government still would have gladly accepted his cooperation and very likely would have fashioned a more generous plea deal for him and certainly would have gotten cooperator credit in sentencing. So I find the fact that Gates is not cooperating somewhat surprising and suggests that, you know, maybe they have a novel legal theory with respect to the viability of these charges or there's some kind of evidentiary issue here that Gates perceives 
it is not apparent from this record so far what that would be. Well, and so these guys, so Manafort was, uh, a lot of this activity stems not from Russia, but Ukraine, uh, a Ukrainian uh, political party regime and leader that were all tied to Russia, uh, but there's, they don't really go there here. You know, this is about Yanukovych, his political party, and um, and activity supporting him in the United States, mainly lobbying uh, the government on his behalf. And this is a guy who was run out of Ukraine um, because of uh, allegations of corruption. And, you know, it appears that Manafort was uh, doing something that under some circumstances could have been legal, which is perform a whole bunch of services in the United States to advocate for Yanukovych and his party and his point of view, uh, but didn't disclose it, uh, failed about the fact he lied about um, the activities he was going to disclose, um, and then moved a lot of money around um, that he made uh, from these, uh, these lobbying contracts and other work that he did. Uh, he moved a lot of money around that he didn't disclose to federal authorities and then committed potentially like allegedly committed fraud uh, to banks and other institutions in the United States, in addition to lying to the IRS, et cetera. Um, and so it, it stems from Ukraine, not Russia. And so I think the, the big political question that people are going to ask is why is this in Robert Mueller's purview if it isn't exactly linked to, to the, the campaign at the moment? Yeah. So the, the, the easy answer to that is that this is a, this was a pre-existing investigation. So this is an investigation that the FBI already was undertaking, and it's a very natural home for it. Subsequent to the appointment of the special counsel, where you have an attorney general who is recused by virtue of his involvement in the Russia, excuse me, involvement in the Trump campaign from the Russia investigation, it may be that it was concluded that he would have also have been recused from a Manafort prosecution for the same reasons. Uh, but look, it's, uh, the fact that Mueller is investigating this, he is a disinterested, non-conflicted prosecutor here uh, who took over a um, pre-existing investigation that I think it would not have been unreasonable for them to conclude was likely to have some synergies by virtue of witness overlap if not evidentiary overlap with the ongoing Russia investigation. So, I mean, it's basically, uh, I think it was just kind of a, a logical home for it within the Justice Department. And, you know, just to give people a sense of, you know, what kind of evidence, getting back to this point of state of mind and, you know, how damaging the evidence is, you know, there, there are so many different types of communication that are cited in uh, the indictment document. You know, an example would be, you know, Manafort's in the middle of the uh, the election season. This is August 2016, August 16th. He gets, he, it, word is getting out about uh, Manafort and his connections. And um, Gates, uh, you know, basically Manafort's deputy, sends talking points to uh, one of these many shadowy companies. And, and, you know, once again, like they had set up, um, over 30 companies, according to this document, around the world to funnel money all over the place and weren't disclosing it to the IRS, to the federal government, et cetera. Um, they sent talking points to one of their shell companies that they had. And uh, and then the, per the principal at the company replies, 
you know, basically saying, no, this is what he says is there's a lot of email traffic that has you much more involved than this suggests. We won't disclose it, but heaven knows what former employees of this company or another company might say. Um, so basically saying you're sending me talking points that are basically asking me to lie and, you know, I'm going to tell the company line here, but others might not. You know, like these are pretty serious emails, you know, it's very damn. It, it, look, it's very damning. Right. Because uh, that is basically a close business associate saying, I, I think what you just sent me is a at best incomplete picture of the truth. And we both know why you are doing this. We both know that we both know that there is a reason that we think benefits us for you to disclose that information. Right. Because it is untoward at least if not certainly illegal at the time. So look, I mean, I think it's worth spending like, you know, a minute just talking about what actually the charges are here against Manafort and Gates. So look, uh, at a high level, there are a couple things you have to do if you are someone who is representing a foreign government in the United States, um, as a lobbyist basically. And the very simple thing is you have to register and, um, you, there are very, very, very good policy reasons for this. And it's namely so that the public and those being lobbied, i.e. the members of Congress and the executive branch know exactly who it is that you're representing. So if you file a lobbying disclosure that says you represent North Korea and you start advocating that we should reduce our missile defense spending, then people are going to know to discount that and not follow up with whatever, uh, you know, interrogate your reasoning. They're going to understand why you're making these kind of ridiculous claims. Similarly here, you know, if you are uh, representing the interests of a corrupt human rights abusing government, uh, you might want to shield that, or you might think it is in your interest or your government's interest for you to shield that and not have it be known that that's in fact who you're representing. So this is like a very kind of, simple filing requirement um, and that you have to basically register and make it very well known that you are representing this government and they just simply didn't do that. Right. And so uh, that's kind of, I mean, it is, unless there is, there are really important facts that we don't know. It really seems like they didn't do that. Um, and so that's count, ten, that's count 10 of the indictment. Um, so similarly, uh, there's another kind of requirement that requires if you have a foreign bank account, right? So we all have our, you know, Bank of America or Chase or Swab accounts in American banks. But if you have a bank account that's located outside the U.S. and it's got more than $10,000 in it, you have to file what's called an FBAR, a foreign bank account report. And there are a lot of really good reasons for that. So it really helps the government track money laundering and uh, make sure that, um, we know, uh, the government knows, uh, how like large sums of money are flowing in and out of the government. It helps with money laundering investigations, tax evasion investigations, et cetera. Uh, and so he had a variety of these accounts that would have been FBAR eligible in the sense that they were required. Right. Like an insane amount. Yeah. And, and not only that, but he, it, this isn't just a failure to fire, file paperwork from what I understand, um, for the form 1040 has a schedule schedule B that says yes or no. Do you have money in foreign bank accounts? You know, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so, and so he never, 
uh, he never did that. So from 2008 to 2014, he represented falsely that he did not have authority over those farm bank accounts. So again, so that's for Manafort, that's counts three to six. For Gates, that's counts seven to nine. So just on those things alone, we've got counts, uh, we've got uh, eight counts of the indictment right there. Um, so um, then we get into the stuff that's, uh, you know, the, the conspiracy to launder money, uh, which really is where you get into this kind of totally fascinating forensic accounting work that the government did to trace the flows of funds through these various shell companies uh, from the Ukraine to the other subsidiary companies that Manafort created. Um, and he wasn't claiming any of this money as income on his uh, tax returns, which is your conspiracy to defraud the United States from uh, tax revenue. Um, but so what he did was he started buying real estate in New York City. And so he bought these $3 million condos and he bought them in cash using his foreign funds because he could transfer the funds directly from the foreign, foreign countries. And then what he did is he went to banks in the US and took out mortgages on them. And then so he got the amount of the value of the condo just in his checking account. And then he then <laughs> proceeded to spend that money rather lavishly as is uh, detailed in the indictment. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, it's a lot of strong evidence that they did, they did the stuff that's alleged here. Well, let's talk a little bit about where this all goes, right? Because, you know, um, you know, Papadopoulos is, you know, already, uh, he's already pled, he's admitted to wrongdoing. It looks like Manafort and Gates absent a pardon are in real trouble here, real potential flip. Uh, there's possibility that any of the three or all of them were uh, party to conversations um, over the past few months that also could be uh, in the crosshairs of uh, Mueller and his team. Um, but we've, you know, Vox, I think, did a good explanation this week where uh, today where they said there are kind of three types of crimes that Mueller may uncover. Uh, the first are crimes directly related to the election. The second are uh, crimes committed during the investigation itself. And then the third are, are crimes committed by people in Trump's orbit uh, before they join the campaign. Right. Um, and so we're obviously second and third. Uh, were there, right? There are people who, during the investigation, are obstructing justice. Um, on the third front, uh, Manafort's crimes were committed before, and, and, and it seems like during the campaign, but not yet uh, alleged, uh, at least clearly alleged to have been related to his work on the campaign. Um, so where do you think we go from here as it relates to one? you know, directly related to the election. Well, look, I mean, so you've now got, as I mentioned earlier, a clear public record that there's a cooperating witness. And I think that that is likely to precipitate some additional cooperation from folks who've been identified by the Justice Department as targets of the investigation. Again, that will happen completely behind closed doors. We will have absolutely no visibility into that. Um, so that, that will continue. They'll continue to develop operating witnesses and new evidence from the publication of this uh, new information. The second is you've got Manafort and Gates, who now are charged with federal crimes. Those cases will proceed like any other case that's under indictment. There will be uh, presumably uh, Gates and Manafort will file motions to dismiss the indictment. There'll be uh, briefs submitted back and forth between the government and Manafort and Gates about whether the indictment should remain in place. 
Uh, I have a really strong hunch that those motions will be dismissed or those motions will be denied and the indictments will be, will stand and they'll go into discovery. And then the government will have to give over a lot of information that it has about Manafort and Gates, including any records of any statements that they've made um, and anything that's exculpatory for Manafort and Gates uh, or anything that would potentially impeach witnesses against Manafort and Gates to uh, discovery to those guys in the discovery process. So that's like the second track that this is going on. The third is, you know, there's still an active investigation presumably going on here, right? Um, at the very top of the podcast, I mentioned there was a third thing that I thought got really, really limited play today, but was significant was an unsealing of another order in the Manafort Gates case, which the chief judge of the DC district court um, granted the special counsel's request to compel testimony from a lawyer for Manafort. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, it's basically is, saying that an exception to the, the attorney privilege doesn't work. Yeah. Doesn't yeah. apply, which is, you know, that is the thing that happened today where I said, Whoa, that is extraordinary because the attorney client privilege is really inviolate. And there is one big exception, which is the crime fraud exception, which is if you are using your attorney to perpetrate a crime or a fraud, but it's really hard. I mean, it's, it's not, you know, it's not easy to prove that. And here the district court found that it was pretty clear that that's exactly the purpose for which the uh, attorney's advice had been sought. And again, uh, it, it appears again, no evidence that the attorney knew that that was uh, what was going on. Uh, but that's, that just shows that the special counsel is really not only being aggressive, but using all of the tools in the toolbox to develop evidence here. Yeah. And so, you know, one thing that's being debated right now is what if uh, Mueller actually uncovers charges or covers criminal activity by the president himself? And there, there seems like there's two paths here. Um, one is he could attempt to bring charges against the president. And I'd love you to talk a little bit about whether uh, that's even possible. Uh, and the second is he could write uh, a, a report to the House of Representatives that, that you know, basically says that there's evidence of high crimes and misdemeanors, like language that would uh, suggest impeachment. Um, what do we know about these two options and, um, and how strong each of those could be for him? If he ever covered uh, legal activity, obviously, by the president. Okay, so let's take the the second one, because I think, again, if we're assuming a world where the special counsel uncovers evidence that the president committed a crime, I think the, the overwhelming likelihood is that the special counsel would write a comprehensive report detailing the evidence that supported that allegation and submit it to Congress and basically refer the matter uh, to the legislative branch. And the remedy um, is impeachment to the extent that there has been a crime because impeachment is appropriate for, you know, high crimes and misdemeanors. And so uh, there is an academic debate about whether the president can be prosecuted. This came up back in 1998 in the star investigation of uh, then president Clinton. There was some uh, kind of news about this back in back over the summer because the memo came out. Uh, that had been released uh, that a law professor had written saying that there were circumstances in which Bill Clinton could be prosecuted. 
you know, it, it, it's not worth giving a kind of conclusive yes or no on that question because it's obviously untested. And I think that the, the much more likely route for Mueller is that he would refer the matter to the legislative branch. And so, you know, and talking about the implications of this, you know, this is in the backdrop of, you know, we're reading legal documents right now, which are, you know, five months or so into at least Mueller's uh, leadership of this investigation. We have somebody who's already pled guilty to crimes, who is an advisor to the Trump campaign, the chairman of the Trump campaign, um, who's admitted to or who's uh, being alleged to have committed um, a series of, of pretty brazen crimes and, and an, an associate of his. But we also have in the backdrop of this some uncomfortably close ties between the Trump campaign and Russia that are obviously what triggered the combination of that and the fact that it was pretty obvious that Russia hacked um, the DNC servers and, and propagated um uh, sort of you know, weaponize those uh, those emails um, to, for political gain. You had some weird interactions between the Trump campaign and people closely associated with Russia, even outside of this. And so you had, you know, in I think it was June of 2016, you have a meeting between Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, Paul Manafort, and this lawyer Natalia Veselnitskaya who uh, is basically representing oligarchs to overturn this law called the Magnitsky Act. Um, are you familiar enough with the Magnitsky Act to talk a little bit about why this could come up later on uh, in the story of Russia and the United States? Yeah, so the, like the Magnitsky Act generally is a uh, tremendous piece of um, American foreign policy implemented, implemented by the legislature and passed by Congress that sanctions certain individuals in Russia. And so uh, this is uh, particularly people who are closely associated with Vladimir Putin. It is you know, re- reported that Vladimir Putin um, issued the rule that banned uh, American adoptions of Russian babies in response to uh, the United States passage of the Magnitsky Act. Uh, this is a law that hits close to home because people who are put on the Magnitsky list uh, cannot uh, basically have uh, foreign bank accounts uh, and uh, there are travel restrictions and it, is, it becomes very difficult to kind of be a person who would want to take advantage of ill-gotten gains abroad uh, if your name is on the Magnitsky list. And so uh, that's obviously something that Russia uh, wants to overturn and you know seek legislative relief uh, from. Thankfully, from my perspective, uh, just the opposite has happened. More countries have passed similar uh, Magnitsky acts, uh, including Canada, most recently a couple weeks ago. So, um, you know, look, I I don't know if there's any reason to. Uh, I don't think there's any evidence as to you know whether that's going to come up again. But certainly, the uh, Trump Tower meeting that you referred to uh, that appears to at least have been uh, in principal part why the uh, Russian lawyer requested the meeting. Uh, at this stage, it is. You know, I think there's a ton of speculation about where the investigation is likely to lead. And I think the only thing we know for sure, it is very likely that the special counsel is just going to follow the facts where they lead. And, you know, look, those facts may lead to a bunch of, of collateral crimes, not dissimilar to the ones that are alleged in the Manafort and Gates indictment. And there may be more cover-up type crimes. Uh, but I just don't know, you know, there's no, no reason to know whether or not there's going to be a kind of grand 
unifying conspiracy. Uh, I think that there's, you know, right now it's we're kind of in a wait and see posture. Yeah, and I think the, the meeting with uh, Vessel and Sky is a good example of, you know, the it seems that no matter what, uh, people in Trump's orbit have a hard time telling the truth or fully disclosing and for being super generous. Uh, you know, material information that's at, that that appears to be in Mueller's crosshairs, right? Like Kushner repeatedly uh, failed to properly disclose meetings uh, on his um, background check form when he came into the government. And even after amending it, still continued to make mistakes on it, um, you know, in, in, in a charitable view. Uh, when asked about this meeting, um, the participants in the meeting said, you know, per your point about adoptions, that the meeting was about adoptions, which, you know, most people familiar with this issue, including Bill Browder, who wrote this book, The Red Notice, about this, and whose lawyer is the Sergei Magnitsky, the lawyer who was killed in Russia and for which the bill is named, um, basically says this, it is, there's a 0% chance that this meeting was really about uh, adoptions um, and that this was a lobbying meeting to overturn an act that had, what, 97 to 3 support in the United States Senate. So it just all seems really strange. And like the cover up, there, there appears to be either really bad memories in the Trump administration whenever Russia's involved or something worse going on here. Well, Bobby, don't forget, uh, the president has said he has one of the greatest memories of all time. So uh, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps, perhaps that will be tested. Uh, we'll see. I think, look, there's there is obviously a lot of smoke. Right. And I think we're I think we're all we all benefit by being careful about identifying what is smoke and what just looks really suspicious and what there is actual hard evidence for. But the smoke of the president repeatedly praising Putin, saying very charitable things about a effectively authoritarian human rights abusing dictator in his own country uh, is just completely uh, at odds with kind of the facts on the ground and what the traditional kind of American role is vis-a-vis Russia and otherwise in foreign policy. So yeah, and the Republican role too. And, and, and the Republican role, role. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, man, and that, that really segues into, I think kind of what the, the real kind of hard and I hope, uh, you know, soon to be resolved question for our kind of normal constitutional order here, which is will the legislative branch kind of actively assert its role here, irrespective of party, uh, if there are any attempts to, Stymie the special counsel investigation, and I just think that um, it's incumbent upon people of both parties to say, "Look, the special counsel has to be allowed to do his job and follow the facts where they lead." And any efforts to impede the special counsel are going to be completely unacceptable. And there have been bipartisan bills introduced in the Senate uh, to to do that to basically memorialize the special counsel uh, and and prevent his um, his removal. But I think that's really where. There will be, uh, that's kind of where the rubber is going to hit the road from a constitutional matter. Well, with that, uh, at almost midnight Eastern, thank you for jumping on uh, so late. Uh, And just thank you for joining us. Uh, We'll have to have you on once uh, we have the next late breaking news in this case. Happy to do it, man. Good to talk to you. Thank you.